Open your Bibles to John chapter 14. We are back full steam ahead into the gospel of of John. We were in the book of Proverbs for a good bit of the summer, but now we're back going through the gospel of John. We, We picked back up last week in John chapter 14. We do have sermon booklets available. Can you believe it's the ninth installment of those sermon booklets? So you can pick one up on the way out today or go hop up real quick and grab one. Use them for sermon taking notes or in your community group or your personal quiet times. But it's good to be back. We're going to be in John 14, um, beginning in verse 8. I was trying to think about what to compare the setting here to. And I, and I started thinking about the great anticlimactic moments in history. You know, 30 years ago, Geraldo Rivera opening up Al Capone's supposedly treasure-laden vault. And what did he find? An empty soda bottle. It was terribly exciting. (laughs) Many of you remember the Y2K apocalypse, of course, that was supposed to turn us all into zombies. There was a little hiccup on my computer and my watch, but that was about it. Of course, uh, in Wizard of of Oz, the Toto pulling back the curtain to expose... Um, the great and powerful Oz, and he was actually a, a wee little man on a stool. And, um, and so think about all these moments where there's been a huge buildup and there's excitement and enthusiasm only for the air to be sort of let out of the balloon. That is exactly, in a lot of ways, what's going on in John chapter 14. But this is the mother of all anticlimactic moments. It was only 72 hours prior to this that the disciples had journeyed in as part of Jesus' entourage to hosannas and shouts of praise and let's make Jesus king, and they were on top of the world. They fully expected Jesus to come in and set up his throne, to set up his reign. They were so sure of where this was all headed that they were actually jockeying for position on Jesus' cabinet, so to speak. They were arguing about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom, and who was going to sit on Jesus' right, and who was going to sit on Jesus' left. And they get to the upper room the last night of Jesus' life. they're, they're, They're ready for Jesus to inaugurate his kingdom. And then the air gets sucked out of the room when Jesus tells them, it's not going to end the way you think it's going to end. I'm not setting up my reign right now. In fact, I'm, I'm going away, and I'm, I'm leaving you here right now, and you're going to be so terrified you're all going to scatter. And this is going to all happen at the hands of a betrayer, someone in your midst, someone, it's going to come from a direction you never expected. Your earthly hopes and dreams as you've envisioned them are, are over course, he says, Peter, you you think you're so bold and you're with me to the end. Peter, your faith isn't going to last the night. You're going to betray me three times. And we pick this up in John chapter 14, where the disciples are devastated. They are troubled. And last week we looked at Jesus's command to them, his imperative to them to not let their hearts be troubled, but instead to believe in him. And Jesus then proceeds to give this string of promises for why they should believe in him, for why they shouldn't be troubled. And last week, we we talked about this idea how Jesus made promise number one that he was going away to prepare a place for them. 
And this, is, and this place is not just eternal, although it is, it is certainly that. It's not less than that. But he's, but he's very importantly going to provide a way for them to spend eternity with him. You see, Jesus could have established his throne. He could have established his reign. But that would not have done them any good because they couldn't have been a part of the kingdom. They were, their hearts were not right. Their, their sin, our sin, had to be paid for, atoned for. So Jesus said, I have to go away to prepare a place. And this morning, we're going to see that Jesus gives them two additional promises. And of course, not just for them, but for us in our trouble. The promise of his presence and the promise of his power. So I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to be in John chapter 14. We're going to begin in verse 6, sort of get a running start and a bit of a context. And Jesus is, of course, speaking, and he says this. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, Four Oaks Church, I will do it. Let's pray. Lord, these seem to be abstract, ethereal, way out there sorts of promises that you are making to us here. And so, Lord, my prayer this morning is that you, in fact, would make them real. You would write them upon our hearts, that you would activate your word in our souls through the power of your spirit. Lord, we ask for your help this morning. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me take your seats. Two points, the promise of his presence, the promise of his power. The promise of his presence is where we're going to begin Jesus says, back in verse 6, we looked at it this past week or this last Sunday, I am the way. To which Philip, in verse 8, says this. Look there with me. Let's read it together. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Interesting, this is a command in the Greek. Philip is giving a directive to Jesus. Now, one thing you have to appreciate about Philip, and, and, and you just know John as the, as the front row seat eyewitness to all these accounts, has a distinguished, I mean, he just brings out the character of these men so well. Remember, it was Philip earlier in John's gospel who is the brutally honest disciple. 
When they tell him they found Jesus and he's from Galilee, and what does is, what is Philip say? Galilee? What in the world could come out of Galilee? You've got to be kidding me. So, so the, he had no guile. He just spoke the truth. And, and by the way, that might be very well capture the sentiment of many of us. As we think about our trouble, as we think about the, the, the sorts of promises that Jesus is making, we might very well say, oh, that's, that's well and good, Jesus, about a place and going away. And, but, but my trouble's here. What, what good is this going to do me? You know, interesting, some of you know this, Susan and I in June went out west to a, to a camp called J.H. Ranch. Um, it's where many of you, some of you have been, sent your kids, and, but they have a, a, a special place. They do marriage retreats, pastors and wives, uh, marriage retreats, and we just had the most wonderful time, and we were doing all sorts of cool things, but, but I knew there was always this something sort of in the back of my mind that was looming back there. That, that I just tried to stuff away, I knew that at some point in the week, we were going to have to make our journey to the high ropes course, something they call the Odyssey. And of course, the Odyssey makes the tree-to-tree at Tallahassee Museum look like a little teeter-totter. Now, to understand, at least in my mind, now understand something, I hate heights. I hate heights like Indiana Jones hates snakes, okay? I hate them. And, and, and part of what they asked us to do is not simply navigate this high ropes course personally, but to navigate it with whom? My dearly beloved, okay? Now, now I would love to tell you that I rose to the occasion. I would love to say and tell you that I was Susan's champion, that I gloriously led my wife across those, those wires, that I laid my body down while she, while she tiptoed across me. But of course, that would be lying. Hey, I did nothing of the sort. I was nervous. I was sweating. I was nauseous. I cheated my way across that thing, and, and this is what I mean. You know, they tell you you're, you're attached with this strap to the wires, that it's, it's the safety harness, and they tell you to get the most out of this experience. Don't hold on to the strap, hold on to your spouse, right? And like make, lean on each other and get the ropes going this way and that. I don't think I touched Susan one time, okay? I just grabbed this strap and I held on for dear life the whole way across. Now understand something. Intellectually, I knew I was safe. I looked at the construction of the tower. I, I looked at the wonderful staff that was, that was helping us across. I could see people before me and after me go forward. But I was still doubting. I was still troubled. In fact, I got up to the very last obstacle. It was the zip line. And, and, and despite having all these assurances, I froze. I froze. And I looked at the young man who was, who was doing the zip line. He was about eight or nine years old, okay? And I had about a thousand questions for him. Is it safe? Show me again how you did that tie thing. Okay, how long have you been working here? Are you a Calvinist? I'm a Calvinist too. Okay, I, I needed some constant final reassurance. That's Philip. That's Philip. See, he's speaking for all the 
disciples when he says, Lord, show us. I mean, they, they, they kind of sent Philip to the front of the line and say, Philip, you tell Jesus, this ain't cutting it. We need something else here. We need some, we need some reassurance. I mean, all this stuff about going to a place and preparing a way, that all sounds fine. But Jesus, I need more. And, 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 and I'll trust you. I'll trust you, Jesus, just this one thing I ask. This one condition upon which I will follow. I want some direct access. I want God to show up right here, right now, today. Show us the Father, Jesus. Now, on one hand, not an unusual request for a Jew. We know in the Old Testament there are strategic appearances by God in sort of theophanies or or different sorts of forms, um, in human form or in a cloud or in a fire, particularly in moments of crisis, particularly when mo- in moments of, that, that are of a monumental import. And so we think about God appearing to Moses in the burning bush or Isaiah in the throne room with the seraphim or Jacob wrestling with God before he goes off into the, the promised land. So it's not necessarily unusual requests, but we do need to dig a little bit underneath the surface to understand exactly what Philip is demanding. When Philip says, show us the Father, what is he really saying? John MacArthur says this about this passage, and I think he's right. MacArthur says, what the disciples are essentially saying is, we don't think that we can do this thing by faith. God, you're going to have to show up in the way that I need you to. You know, we, we do the same thing in our doubt, don't we? Despite God's history of faithfulness before and after us, despite his promises, we still doubt we just domesticate it. We don't say it exactly like that, but we, you probably have said something like this. If you heal that disease, Lord, I'm with you. If you just restore my marriage, restore that relationship, that's enough for me. If you give me that job, there's no turning back. Or maybe you're a skeptic here this morning, and you said, you know, I, I, I've, I've brokered this deal with God before. God, show me a sign. God, resolve the problem of evil. God, give me some ironclad proof. That will be enough. That's where I think the disciples are. I think where many of us are, if we're honest. And look to verse 9 to how Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? In other words, Philip, Philip, come on, man. How can you say that? You've been with me. You've seen the works. You've seen my faithfulness. You've seen, I, I've, I've never not kept my word to you. In fact, verse 9, he goes on to say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. What you're looking for, Philip, is right here. Philip, you can stop your search. The search is over. Here I am. It's me. And it's just as 
if, and it's just as good enough as if God himself has shown up. We have to say, on what basis does Jesus say that? That is a pretty bold and audacious claim. That has immense theological, eternal, practical, pastoral implications for all of us. Look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus makes it as plain as can be. He says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. In fact, the Father dwells or lives within me. I am God, Philip. Now, when Jesus starts saying something like this, they teach whole seminary, excuse me, courses on these sorts of statements on Trinitarian theology. We are into the into the deep, deep end of the theological pool here. And there's so much that we can say. But what Jesus is explaining here is what theologians often call the perichoresis or mutual indwelling. Now, this will bake your noodle if you think about it too long, but but think about this for a second. Jesus is saying... The relationship between the Father and the Son, between me and the Father, is so close that while we are distinct in person, we are actually one being. So that we can rightly say, if we know Jesus, we know God. There is an... ontological oneness. There is, these are not two separate beings who kind of come close together. These are, in fact, again, we can't do justice to this in human language. Three persons so close, so intertwined, so indwelling one another that to speak to one is, in a sense, to speak to the other. So he says, Philip, what you want is right here in front of your face. Now, now we see this echoed all throughout the New Testament, and here's just a, a sampling of verses. Colossians 1, Jesus, or he, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to, there's that same word, ready? Dwell. Dwell. When Jesus was walking around on the face of the earth, God was walking around on the face of the earth. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. So when Jesus, when God sent forth his son, thinking, what is the clearest, best expression of myself that I can give to my people? In the Old Testament, it was through the prophets, it was through the word. Tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to go myself as Jesus. You know, in the intelligence community, data or intelligence is deemed to be most factual or verifiable when it's as close to the source as humanly possible. 
In fact, when, when, you, when you have intelligence that, that you believe is, is just super-duper accurate, it's called actionable intelligence. And, and actionable intelligence, it has to be verified. It, it has to be so because lives are at stake, right? This secret mission is ordered or that airstrike is, is commanded or, those, or those, that army is sent into that particular place or, or what have you. And what, what, what Jesus is saying is, I am giving you first-hand revelation. I'm not just a messenger of God's. So, so there, there can be in some religions, in some, in some cultic expressions of Christianity, this idea that Jesus is, is one of many of God, one of, one of many of the sons of God, that, that he is a created being, that he is a messenger, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. I reveal the Father because I'm the exact representation of his being. This is how, in the only way, that God makes himself known. In fact, when you look back at the text, verse 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. God has made himself known through Jesus definitively, visibly, and gloriously. And we have to ask, pastorally, practically, okay, thanks, Pastor Paul, for that theological lesson. But how is this comforting to me in times of trouble? What, is this, what does this mean for me right here, right now? And I just want to give you three quick application points before we move on. Number one, we have a simple apologetic. A simple apologetic. You know, a lot of times, isn't it interesting that as a, as a Christian culture, we no more have access, access to, to more knowledge, theology, information about our faith, but yet we are one of the most anemic cultures in the history of the church in sharing the gospel. Isn't that interesting? Guys, we don't suffer from lack of knowledge. Jesus is reminding us here that our faith is founded and centered upon one man, the God-man Jesus Christ, we don't have to make this more complicated than it really is. A lot of times we feel like I've got to be an expert in philosophy, religious studies, natural sciences, sociology, the social sciences, and throw a little math in there for some strange reason. I've got I to be an expert on all things afoot in order to share my faith, and that is just wrong. See, ultimately, our apologetic, our reason for believing and and following is wrapped up in one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. You will find, and it's not to say that people's questions about the Bible or truth or science or any of those things are are not valid or don't deserve a worthy response. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is always begin with the Son of God because everything ultimately boils down to can we believe he is who he says he is? Everything else crumbles in Christianity. So God gives us a simple apologetic. Number two, he gives us a simple certainty. Now, I understand when we read passages like this in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, 
we, we, we immediately think about that as bad news. Like, ooh, that's going to get us in trouble in a pluralistic culture. Like, oh my gosh, I mean, that'll get us run out of restaurants and that'll get us ostracized and somebody will say something mean about us on Facebook or, or, or something. This is, this is bad news. Now, pluralism, on the other, on the other hand, whew, that's, that's good news, right? Because many ways and nobody's wrong and everybody's right and we get to the end of things and just kind of hope it all works out. Because one of the important things about coming to corporate worship on Sunday and us doing this is that we get to, to be real again. God begins to connect us to reality, to truth, and say, that is not reality, the air that you're breathing. See, see reality is that that's terrible news. See, pluralism is, is a hopeless worldview because it just simply says, you know, 50-50, when you get to the end, it'll work out. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Eat, drink, tomorrow we may die. I mean, who knows? Guys, that's, that's terrible news. But if, in fact, Jesus is God, we have certainty this morning that we know God himself. So to quote Francis Schaeffer, the, the pluralist, and, and by the pluralism, I don't mean diversity of of ethnicity or background. That's not the way I'm using the term. I'm using the term to, to denote that this idea that no value system, no worldview could be, can be raised above another, that all are, are equally valid, all will take you in the same direction. Francis Schaeffer said the, the humanist, the pluralist, has both feet firmly planted in midair. And you don't know you're about to hit the ground until it's too late to pull the parachute cord. Guys, this is good news. This is, this is good news. A third thing I want to say is that this knowledge of the way, the truth, and the life, the reason this is a comfort in, in trouble is that it gives us simple access. So there's, there's a simple certainty. There's a, there's a simple apologetic, but there's also a simple access. You need to know something. Whatever you came in here today bearing, whatever guilt, whatever shame, whatever hardship, whatever trouble, whatever secret sin, whatever struggle, diagnosis, set of divorce papers you received, you need to know something. You, you can know Jesus today. You have access to the God of the universe there is no secret club. There is no secret handshake. There's not a, not, there's not a password. We're not going to corral, corral you all into a room off to the side after this is over and give you the secret knowledge that you have to know to really know God, to really know Jesus. And by the way, when you hear groups or churches say things like that, run, run, okay, as fast as you can. See, the reason that we have access today is that Jesus has revealed himself through his word. He's revealed himself through his word. His, his word is the way he makes himself known. Without the Bible, we wouldn't know who Jesus is. See, we're, we're in, a, in, a, in a progressive sort of Christian context, and I use that word loosely. There's this idea that Jesus somehow stands ab- above the Bible, 
that, that there's what Jesus says and there's what Paul says, but what Jesus says is more important. Forgetting, we wouldn't know this Jesus apart from what? The Word of God. In fact, who, who is it that commissioned Paul to go right and do what he did? It was whom? Jesus. You see, Jesus validates this very word that we study. He says, the Old Testament's all about me. He says, apostles, I'm going to entrust my message to you. You take it to the nations. The New Testament, it's going to be all about me. Because you can't know Jesus apart from his word. But you can know him right now. Because Jesus says, I offer myself to you wherever you are. I am the way and the truth and the life. Let me recommend one, more, one little resource to you before we move on to this next point. If you're like, I, I, I get that, Pastor Paul, but it's so hard for me. Where do I even start? How do I build the word into my life? When we were, I want to point you toward a resource. Um, this summer when we were out at the, at, the, at the camp, at the ranch, met a number of pastors and wives, and, and one particular brother just um, has become a really close friend, and he's, he's in his early 60s. His name is David Hegg. He pastors a church, Grace Baptist Church, out in, out in L.A. And he has a, just a super little resource that, that Susan and I have started to use, and we want to use this with our kids. And it, it, when it comes right, if you go online and sign up, it'll come right to your inbox every day. It'll tell you two chapters to read in the Bible. And, you know, if you're like me and you struggle with consistency in these things, and you're like on the eight-year Bible reading plan, not the one, you know, you know what I'm saying? So it gives you two chapters to read five days a week. So you do what you do on Saturday and Sunday or catch up or whatever. And it gives us a little five or six paragraph commentary. Now, I thought about cutting and pasting this and putting it on, on my blog, but David said I couldn't do that. Anyway, and don't spend too much time on that website. It would be like, oh, that's what a real pastor does. Anyway, but I have found it immensely helpful. Just two chapters a day and a little commentary that tells you what you're, what you're reading. So I, I commend that to you, simple access through the Word of God. Okay, Jesus has given us the promise of his presence. Secondly, lastly, he's given us the promise of his power. Now here we come in verses 12 through 14 to some of the most amazing mind blog, whatever, I mean, my mind is boggled right now, amazing promises in all of Scripture. Jesus prefaces these promises by saying, truly, truly. In other words, if you're even tempted to doubt, they may not be true. Jesus says, truly, truly, amen and amen. I'm going to tell you, this is right. Let me just give you an audit, a sample of things that he says that should just like jump out at us and get our attention. Verses 12 and 14. You're going to do the works of Jesus, says. Jesus says, you're going to do the works of Jesus. Not only that, you're going to do greater works than Jesus. You're going to Ask anything in my name, verse 14, I will do it. Now, before we talk about what these mean and why they're applicable, applicable to us in our trouble, let me just make a couple of a preliminary comments. And number one, these are precious promises, but they are not intended for everyone. In other words, in verse 12 where it says, if you believe... This, this is to put a boundary around this and to say, this is not like a book of spells. 
Okay? This isn't like something somebody can pick up and an incantation and Harry Potter-like wave, wave a wand around and say, let it be so. This is for people who have saving faith in Jesus Christ, who have a personal relationship with him. Secondly, I would say, what's amazing, even before we get into the content of what these verses mean, do you realize how amazing it is that as God's children, as part of his family, we can come to him with requests like these? We can come to our Father because Jesus has made a way to the Father. We come in Jesus' name as he is our elder brother. Where whatever trouble lays upon your heart this morning, God hears it, he meets you, he listens, he cares, he loves. When you trust in him, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. All right, so what are we to make of, to make of these things? Granted, let me just say this. These verses have been put to all sorts of theological mischief over the centuries. A lot of people have been really burned and had their faith really shattered by not understanding these correctly. All the way from the reason you don't have, reason you don't have healing is because you haven't prayed enough. Or the reason this, God hasn't answered this particular thing is because you don't have faith. No, the, the, these, these verses fundamentally are not ultimately about you. They're about Jesus. And I want to say three things about them and, how they're, and then how they're applicable to us in our trouble. How the power of God, the promise of his power is accessible for us and what that means. Number one, we need to understand the meaning and purpose of the word works. Okay, okay look, back, look down in 12, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes me will also do the works that I do. So that's an important qualifier. What does Jesus mean when he says works? Well, I think in this context, he clearly means the miracles, the things, the ministry that he has done that the disciples were eyewitnesses to. If you look back at verse 11, he again calls calls on them to, to remember these things. Now, isn't it interesting when you think about the bread into, into, I mean, the fishes and loaves into bread for 10,000 or the water into wine or the healing of the blind man, John has a specific word for those. John calls them signs, signs. Jesus refers to them as works. In fact, some have called the, the gospel of John the book of signs. There's like seven major signs. And understand something, signs are not given for the, for the bare sake of showing naked power. See, they were in a village that rejected Jesus, and the disciples were like, call the fire down on these people, all Elijah like Jesus, and he rebukes them. He said, that's, that's, that's not a power that honors and glorifies me. See, John uses the word signs, Jesus uses the word works as indicators are things that point to the identity of Jesus Christ, that point to the affirmation of who he is. This is why when, when 
the Pharisees asked for, his, for a sign. He said, a wicked and adulterous nation asked for a sign. Hey, you're not interested in knowing me. You're not interested in having my power displayed. You're, I'm some kind of carny barker or, you know, or something like that. I, I, I'm a magician. No, 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 no. I don't do your bidding. So, so, one, we have to understand the meaning and purpose of works, of signs. They are to glorify, point to, display the greatness of Jesus Christ. And so when we're thinking, when we're praying about that healing in our life that we want God to do, when we're praying about that, that thing we want him to answer or that thing that, he, that we want him to do, we have to know that that is bound up in this idea that what we're really asking is, God, you would use this particular thing to point to you, to display you. Number two, let's remember who these promises were first given to. These promises were first given to the apostles, and before we can understand what they mean for us, we have to understand what they mean for them. When Jesus says they will do greater works than these, Okay, he's talking to the apostles. He's not talking hypothetically or not using hyperbole. And by, by this, he doesn't mean you're going to do greater kinds in terms of spectacular display. He means greater in scope, greater in quantity. Do you know how many followers of Jesus there were when Jesus ascended into heaven? 120. Do you know how many followers there were of Jesus after the first day of Pentecost? Thousands. See, the book of Acts is a testament from start to finish of conversions, the spread of the gospel, the planting of churches, literally Christianity transforming the world, all confirmed by signs and wonders for the purpose of making his name great. And so there is a kingdom aspect when we pray these things. Think about your healing. Think about that answer to prayer you're asking God for. Think about that broken relationship. You're, you're first asking God, let this point to you. Let it reveal you. Secondly, you're saying, God, let's somehow let this be oriented towards the kingdom. Let, let this somehow build your kingdom, display your glory. You've heard me share this before. Our sister Deborah Pacetti, who has continued to struggle, fight through, wrestle through pancreatic cancer five years now after being given a, a terminal diagnosis, totally gets this. When she says, you know what, I pray for my healing, but it's not about my healing. It's about, my, it's about for example, my sons who didn't know the Lord, but now they do because they've seen the gospel of grace and the power of God displayed in my life. A third thing we want to say, what we should expect to happen when we pray. Understand, whatever it is on your heart this morning, pray for it. Pray for it in Jesus' name. Pray that God will do greater work. Pray, pray it all. But listen to what Jesus says. Whatever you ask, if you ask anything in my name. You know, a lot of times we throw around the in Jesus' name just kind of like as an afterthought, but have you ever thought about what we're really saying? See, prayers offered in the name of the sovereign, of the king, 
are offered in accordance with what that name stands for. So, so Nehemiah says, King Artaxerxes, I, I need some papers. I need some marching orders so I can get back to Israel to rebuild the wall so that when presented or confronted and people say, on what basis are you going to do this? You, I can say, in the name of the king. See, when, when, when we pray in Jesus' name, we are praying that his reign and his rule will be extended. And sometimes that reign and rule is extended by him taking away our troubles. But as we know, oftentimes his reign is extended by working through our troubles. And he's doing greater works than we could ever imagine. You see, part of what God wants us to do, and for you to do, for me to do, is to expand our imagination this morning. See, we think it's all about this particular thing in front of me. And if God would just fix this thing, then, then everything is right. And God says, I've got, I've got so much more in store. I've got greater purposes. I've got a greater power. I've got... I'm, I'm answering your prayers in ways you have no idea about. Guys, you all know that, that God is answering prayers that were prayed 2,000 years ago today? Do you know that, that God, 2,000 years from now or whenever he returns, he's going to take up all the prayers that the saints have prayed in, in, a, in a metaphorical bowl, and he's just going to dump them out and accomplish his purposes. John, in 1 John, interestingly, I think provides a little bit of commentary on what he means here, what Jesus means here. 1 John chapter 5. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. What does that mean? Everything we've been saying. Understanding what works were for, understanding what promises were given to do, understanding what happens when we invoke his name. And this is the confidence that we have had toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him, those in his name, those that extend his reign, those that extend his authority, those that display his worth. And here is why I think praying, kingdom-centered praying, is an antidote for trouble. See, when, 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 when you and I go through trouble, our world shrinks, doesn't it? It becomes all about what's right here. It becomes all about, like, the immediate, right here, right now, today. God, I need you to show up in this specific way. But when we pray for the kingdom to come, we begin to see, you know what? Our trouble is just part of this greater fabric of God doing what God is going to do. And that he is, sometimes he'll work by taking that thing away, and sometimes he will work by bringing more of it. Sometimes he will work in ways that we don't understand or may not even see in this life. Folks, do you realize that we are living in the days of greater works? Do you realize that? We are living in the day of greater works because in the Old Testament or even in the ministry of Jesus, all of these works were pointing towards something in anticipation of something. We now, 
Pray for these greater works and experience them today. The fact that you know Jesus, the fact that your family knows Jesus, that I know Jesus, that you're part of this church, these are all part of the greater works. They're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that will far outweigh them all. So all the Phillips out there, and me included, Jesus reminds us, I've given you my presence. I've given you my power. So now pray. Pray like crazy. Pray that my kingdom come and that my will be done. Because if your heart is stirred at all this morning about this idea of kingdom-centered praying, one of the things that will be announcing here in a few weeks that Pastor Scott will be taking the initiative on is just gathering up folks on Thursday mornings early before the sun rises and just praying that his kingdom would come. And I believe that there is something, this, this isn't the primary reason for Kingdom Center praying, but I think it's, it's a reason. There's something therapeutic about it. That when we get our eyes off ourselves and onto God and what he's doing, it puts our trouble into perspective. It doesn't make it go away. It doesn't minimize it. It just entrusts it to a sovereign God who cares. Let's pray.